Pharmaceutical Technology presents the Drug Solutions Podcast, where the editors will chat with industry experts from across the pharmaceutical and biopharmaceutical supply chain. Join us as experts share insights into your biggest questions, from the technologies to strategies to regulations related to the development and manufacture of drug products. This is the Drug Solutions Podcast. This is Feliza Mirsal, a science editor for Pharmaceutical Technology and Biopharm International. In this episode of the Drug Solutions Podcast, industry experts will give an overview of the biosimilars market and discuss factors affecting not only their manufacture, but their uptake in the market as well. Experts will also highlight technological innovations such as digitalization technologies and their role in facilitating analytical characterization and manufacturing controls for biosimilars. My guests today are Zara Bukhari, who is a PhD student in biochemistry at the University of the Pacific in Stockton, California, and John Gabrielson, who is the Senior Vice President of Biosimilars and Head of Business at JSR Life Sciences. So let's go ahead and meet our guests. Hi everyone, I'm Zara. And um, I'm a PhD scholar right now at University of Pacific. But prior to this, I've worked for six years in R&D for biosimilars and um, in India at Biocon Biologics. So uh, during that time, we had successfully been able to launch Herceptin Biosimilar. And I was involved in the FDA filing for that, um, specifically the validation data that went into it. Uh, apart from that, um, the resin validation data. So now I've come to US and I'm trying to get my PhD, but my PhD is in basic sciences and it would be more towards uh, targeted uh, protein degradation. Hopefully that's where I'm heading. Thank you. Um, John, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, your title, a little bit about your background. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank you for having me. So my name is John Gabrielson. I'm the Senior Vice President of, of Biosimilars for JSR Life Sciences. Um, I have about 10 years of experience with biosimilars directly, and then close to 20 years of experience in the biologics industry overall. Um, got my PhD in, in biophysics and then started at Amgen, um, where I first became introduced to biosimilars and, and some of their programs there. And then I've, I've kind of bounced around a few different places since that time. Um, and most recently, I'm, I'm leading biosimilar development for JSR Life Sciences. My focus is within chemistry, manufacturing, and controls. So I think there's probably some overlap with what Sarah is, um, you know, her experience as well. Um, and, and really looking forward to talk through this today. I actually did want to start out with John. Just wondering if you, and Zara, you could jump in with this if you yeah. have your own a perception on it as well. But what I really wanted to take a look at um, is what the biosimilars market looks like today, like an overview, how many biosimilars are on the the, the U.S. approved for the U.S. market today? Yeah, um, so I'll, um, I'll go ahead and answer that. And then Zara, please do chime in and, and jump in and, and add your thoughts as well. Um, so I think in the U.S. market, um, at last count, I think it's 45 biosimilars, which is amazing progress in the last, yeah. um, I guess, about you know close to 10 years. 
the first biosimilar was approved in the U.S. in 2015. So, you know, the U.S. market is about 10 years behind Europe. Um, I think the first biosimilar anywhere in the world was approved in Europe in 2006. So overall, we're looking at close to two decades now um, of experience worldwide with biosimilars. And I think we've come a long way. I think I think the market is, um, you know, extremely strong right now, but there are some challenges. And, and later on in our discussion, I hope to have some time to kind of talk through what some of those challenges are. Um, but yeah, I think I think most recently in the U.S. at least, we've been talking about Humira biosimilars. Um, those have been a really big entrant to the market, um, and we're sort of seeing how that plays out in terms of market dynamics. Um, but but yeah, to answer your question, I think it's about forty-five biosimilars now approved in the U.S. In terms of something that you know has been uh, in the news, just sort of on on um, lots of people's mind. I mean not just from an industry perspective, but also, you know, regulatory, um, government, patients, is the whole pricing pressure issue. So uh, maybe can you go a little bit into that, how these factors like pricing pressure, or even some of the the efforts we've seen by, you know, government to contain um, the cost of medications in the U.S., how is that having an impact on the biosimilars market? Or as a matter of fact, is that something that the biosimilars market can it benefits them? Again, I'm happy to go, Zara, but if you want to answer this. No, one. no, please go ahead. I okay. just had one point in mind that was the interchangeability. That's a big oh, thing. That is a big yeah. thing. That is a yeah. big thing. Yeah, hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about interchangeability mm-hmm. and guidance and how mm-hmm. it's looked at differently in different parts of the world. Um, but pricing, you know, pricing pressure, I think, is probably um, the central theme of biosimilars. I mean, that's, that is why these products exist uh, fundamentally, is, is to make life-changing medicines more available, more accessible, more affordable to patients throughout the world. And, and so, you know, I think it makes sense that there is pricing pressure in this market, because I think everyone's goal with this is to make medication more affordable to patients. Um, so, you know, I think rather than coming at this as a problem in the market that we need to find a way to overcome pricing pressure, I think we need to think of it as the reality. It's a feature of the system, not a bug. Um, and, and I think what we really need to be doing as biosimilar developers is figuring out creative and innovative ways to build businesses that can be successful in an environment where there is going to be sustained, consistent pricing pressure. Um, And and that pricing pressure can come from lower priced uh, brand name biologics when they come off patent, it can come from competing biosimilars, but I think that's the market we're in. It's not exactly like the generics market, but I think that there are some parallels between what we're seeing with biosimilars and what we've already seen with generics in terms of that pricing pressure. Um, so I think, you know, a good question that we really need to ask ourselves as developers is how is my particular product viable commercially and even differentiated in the marketplace in the face of this type of competition? Yeah. And I think one more point that I would like to add is in um, the time it takes to come to the market. That's very crucial. And mm-hmm. regulate, yeah, how long do it take to come to the market, the availability of your standard products to compare it with so that you have all those CQAs and everything in place. And I think for biosimilars, it's slightly more difficult because they have to um, 
have more data to uh, show the similarity when compared to uh, the innovator. So, yeah, yeah that's right. I, I think, um, and, and I will just jump in there because it's an interesting point. Um, we, when we think about sort of what it takes to bring a biosimilar to market yeah. compared to what it takes to bring an innovative product to market, of course, there's a lot less um, clinical barrier you know, the, the clinical yeah. requirements, that's that's certainly abbreviated for a biosimilar. But what may, many people don't realize is exactly what you said, Zara, that, that the amount of data from a CMC perspective, analytical data and, and data demonstrating analytical similarity is higher than what it would take um, to bring a, an innovative product to market. So there's a lot of work that has to go into demonstration analytically that a product is comparable or similar to its reference product. Um, in order to, you know, achieve that type of regulatory approval. Now, thank you for actually bringing up the the notion of interchangeability, Zara, because that is another thing that even for me, I think I get what that means, but can you go into that a little bit, explain to us interchangeability versus, you know, biosimilarity? I know that there's a difference there. Maybe you could expound on that a little bit. Yeah, for interchangeability, it's like uh, when you go for, a, I would give an example of a small molecule. When you go for a small molecule and um, a drug which is prescribed to you, and if you don't have something like that, the um, at the pharmacy, the pharmacist can give you something which is having the same component. But since we are dealing with biologics, which are bigger molecule and they are very very complex in nature, to show that it is uh, exactly similar. And uh, it would have the same potency, the same uh, kind of uh, reaction that your body, it doesn't have any kind of immunogenicity or it would have the same kind of impact that an uh, innovator has. Um, you need to show that they are interchangeable. Say if uh, the innovative product is not available, you can press and um, the doctor can feel comfortable prescribing a biosimilar. So sometimes the um the comfort level, even though the FDA have things in place and uh, there's been a lot of talks there, there's a lot of money spent on a clinical trial to show that this is part, this is the case. But then, uh, a lot of time the comfort level or the hesitancy is there among doctor patients in prescribing the same medicine. Um, as that of an innovator, even though it's at a low, lower price. And you've established that it is pretty stable, would do the same thing in your body then too. So that is um, that is a hindrance in biosimilar, I would say. The comfort level that the doctors feel and the patients feel in terms of getting an alternate medicine which would have the same impact, is, I don't think it exist but of course um john can comment on it uh, is, uh because for some of the for some of the um biosimilars the sales have not been so high as compared to the innovator despite being dang in the market for a very very long time yeah i would agree I, market uptake has not met expectations in in certain cases at least um, and I think part of it is that hesitancy that you're referring to with the difference between biosimilarity and interchangeability, which 
I think is is unique um, in the U.S. market compared to other areas of the world. I'm not sure if there might be other regions of the world that have something similar, but um, in the U.S., a biosimilar can be approved as a biosimilar without being interchangeable, or it can be approved as a biosimilar that is interchangeable. And as Zara noted, there are switching studies as part of the clinical arms of the um, uh, of the biosimilar approval that need to be done, at least in some cases, to demonstrate that the product is in fact interchangeable. You know, personally, I, I think it's a mistake. I, I feel like what we've created is two classes of biosimilars in the U.S. market, where some are judged to be sort of higher quality because they're interchangeable, which wasn't the intention. Um, I think a better model would be one where any biosimilar that's approved, that, that goes through the rigorous approval process by regulators in the U.S. or elsewhere, is automatically deemed to be interchangeable. Um, with its reference product. I think that would that would ease the burden. I think it would make it easier to have discussions, but you know, the patient, doctor, physician discussions that need to take place um, if there was that comfort level with these products. Um, but I do think interchangeability is one of really one of the key issues as an industry that we have to continue to work through. No, I just wanted um, I just wanted to add more points to it in terms of the interchangeability between um between countries as well it's very different the eu market and the u.s market is very different in that case and probably how john has highlighted it um that's correct like the biosimilarity and the interchangeability is seen differently in the u.s market my follow-up to that is is what needs to be done or, or how do you think that perception can be changed because john you mentioned how there seems to be this notion that certain product, uh, product, you know, maybe a, a better quality or higher class because it's deemed interchangeable, but that seems to be more of a, a, a perception or misperception. How, yeah. like how, how can that be changed? Is that something that the biopharma industry needs to take a hand in or has been taking a hand in, or is that something that, you know, media government, like kind of how does that perception even get, how do you change that? So it, it you know, as you said, that was not, the intention of the developers or the industry, and yet this notion is out there? Yeah, I think it's a good question. Um, and, and I think it's not a single organization or, or even a, a single sector that needs to take the lead in this. I think it's multiple um, groups working together to really change that mindset. Um, certainly the, the industry companies that work in this, the developers need to take a role. Um, regulators, I think, have a role to play in this. Um, I, I even think that Congress might need to step in and actually change the underlying law that dictates interchangeability. I, I think it is actually built into the law, um, which doesn't provide the FDA with as much flexibility as is needed. But I think most of it really comes down to education, right? F education in terms of how do we educate physicians on what biosimilars are, their quality, how rigorously they're tested to ensure that they are safe and efficacious, and that even if they don't have the interchangeability designation, that doesn't mean that they're not safe and they're not effective treatments. Um, and so I think a lot of it really is just education materials that could be put on by you know trade organizations or companies um, speaking to those physicians and, and ultimately even directly to patients. Now I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the manufacturing aspect of biosimilars. 
I have a feeling that actually you both can can probably comment on this, but what would you say are the biggest challenges to manufacturing biosimilars today? Because it seems that it's been a while, it's been a, a few, a couple of decades um, since you've had biosimilars on the market. So you would think most of the kinks may have been worked out, but it seems there may still be some challenges there. So maybe you could comment to that. The first thing that comes to my mind is, of course, the availability of the reference product and then the batch-to-batch availability of the reference product. That is the first thing that comes to my mind. Then, of course, the um, complexity of the um, molecule. And since you're dealing with biologics or biosimilars, um, you cannot have the exact true copies. And a lot of things, the process and the manufacturing aspect of it is patented it's not released so you need to figure it out yourself and um understand the process and then of course the time to the market and navigating the regulatory pathways so as i mentioned earlier you have to provide a lot more data in the cmc data in terms of um how biosimilars when compared to the innovators and it takes time and you have to establish way more step you need to have way more stability data available to show that your product is actually stable and is doing what it is supposed to do with respect to the biosimilar but the biggest hurdle that i see in terms of the manufacturing is of course the availability of the reference product and uh the um the cost and the time to market and another thing that hinders to progress um, is the ideology of adopting the innovation aspect and including it to justify your data to FDA. Say you've taken up um, an innovative method of producing something, then it also has to be validated. So that validation data also has to be uh, given to FDA. So that requires a lot of uh, time and cost. Yeah, I think Zara captured it well. Um, maybe I could provide just a little additional perspective. Um, you know, biologics are hard to produce. To start mm-hmm. with. Any, any biologic, it's a complex molecule. Zara highlighted the fact these are heterogeneous molecules that are large compared to synthetic small, small molecule drugs. So it's hard to do in the first place. But then you have the added difficulty with a biosimilar that you have to sufficiently match specific characteristics of the reference product. So you have to have a good understanding of the reference product. And Zara noted, you know, sometimes it can be difficult to acquire those reference products to procure them from the market. Um, You have to understand what are the critical quality attributes of the reference product, its glycosylation profile, its charge profile, for example. And then determine how to create a manufacturing process that can match those critical quality attributes. Um, so that's, you know, that, that's, a, that's challenging enough. But then there's the added step of understanding what the patents might be that might make it even more difficult to produce that biosimilar because you don't want to infringe existing patents when you do this work. And so you have to think about non-infringement strategies. Is there a different way to control an attribute that was not the way that the reference product controlled that attribute so that you don't infringe certain patents? Um, So it becomes, a, I think, one of the most challenging uh, things, certainly, that I've ever done 
Um, but, but manufacturing biosimilars, I think, is an extremely challenging thing that, that many people don't realize. But as an industry, we've come a long way. And we, we now have, I think, many developers that are getting pretty good at this. Are there any certain key innovations you've seen uh, in the market that are helping to optimize or improve manufacturing for biosimilar products? Um, and I'll, I'll point specifically to digitalization technologies. What impact may they have? Are they a type of innovation that you think is helpful or do they pose newer challenges? In terms of uh, the manufacturing aspect of it, um, I think there are a lot of single-use technologies which weren't available 20 years back, and uh, those are really helping it. And then the use of automation and liquid handling system like Tekens and other things, as well as PAT and MAM that can be implemented. And then you can always have these kind of technologies which can give you in-process progress of how stepwise your uh, uh, the cr critical quality attributes are getting impacted by your process. So you can capture it inline, offline, and those are really good. Uh, the challenge comes, as I said, again, in terms of um, having a validation procedure for them and then also adapting the uh, facility for those single-use system and the new uh, systems that you are implementing. So uh, those are the challenges. And in terms of um, digitalization, I think that really helps in the clinical aspect of it, where you can capture the data more robustly, choose the kind of patients you want. Um, and also for biosimilar, you also have a post, uh, you know, take a follow-up with them. So those kind of data are easily captured uh, in terms of digitalization. And then Automation and digitalization definitely helps in terms of when you're getting your data verified by FDA. Uh, so everything is in place and it is CFR compliant. So um, that way, it really helps. I John, very you have add, I, I think okay. Zara covered, covered it well. I, I guess future oriented. So, so today where we're at, uh, you know, again, I think with process analytical technology, online, outline measurements, we can control attributes in real time or close to real time. That's all wonderful to see those, yeah. those you know, that progress being made and, and those opportunities. Um, what I would love to see more of in the future is a focus on modeling and simulation, you know, full, full modeling of these processes and understanding yeah. where we expect to see clearance of different types of impurities, where we expect to see changes in the product profile during cell culture in, in a modeling sense up front. Um, so we can we can essentially try to understand and, and if not validate, at least characterize our process um, on a computer first, right? Before mm -hmm. ever running it in a lab. And, and I think that would be, mm -hmm. a really, you know, I know there's work being done today in that area, but I expect to see more in the future. You both already touched on some of the regulatory issues or, you know, sort of challenges when it comes to biosimilars. But I just wanted to explore that a little bit further. What may be some, some challenges coming from the regulatory perspective that may be, I mean, I wouldn't say hindering that, but just is making it tough to get a biosimilar through to approval. Yeah. So we touched on um, interchangeability, which I think is still one of the regulatory challenges. I, I think even a lot, the biggest one in my mind, even bigger than interchangeability 
is the need for clinical efficacy studies, or, or perhaps I should say mm-hmm. <laughs> the lack thereof. I, I don't think it's necessary for us to do phase three um, or you know clinical yeah. efficacy studies on biosimilars with the sensitive analytical equipment we have these days. Um, really, a biosimilar can be proven to be highly similar to its reference product with very little residual uncertainty without the need for a confirmatory efficacy study at all. And I think of of anything that we do today, what would have the biggest impact in terms of reducing the cost of biosimilar development? It would be um, removing the requirement to have that type of a phase three clinical efficacy study performed. And I know throughout the world, you know, MHRA is talking about this, the the European Union ultimately, uh, you know, I think will also probably do this before the FDA, but, and this is me speculating, I expect that that these types of requirements will be um, completely gone from expedited approval pathways within the next 10 to 15 years. At least mm-hmm. I hope they will, because that will allow us to really reduce the cost of biosimilar development. Now, do you imagine that if they phase that out, um, would they instead say, okay, well, instead of uh, conducting another phase three, you know, clinical study, just run this test and like kind of that'll be good enough for us. Do you think that's something that might develop? Yeah, I think the, I think it's likely that if there's the removal of a certain requirement, that there would be the expectation of raising the bar in other areas. And I think that will naturally happen anyway, as our analytical tools become better and more and more sensitive over time, we'll be able to demonstrate very clearly how similar biosimilars are to their reference products analytically. And then I think there are things we can do with immunogenicity assays, you know, PKPD, you know, phase one type trials. And then, you know, I also think the non-clinical animal studies are probably unnecessary. So we'll have to think about ways to to demonstrate um, safety of these products, you know, without hopefully involving animals at all. But Yes, to your point, I do think that anytime we're removing some type of regulation, we're going to need to think very critically about what types of other studies we can put in its place to ensure that these products really are safe and efficacious, um, Mm -hmm. you know, once they're approved. Well, that's great. Thank you both so much for, for your time and for offering those insightful comments. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. to our editors and experts for sharing their insights. Stay tuned for future episodes of the Drug Solutions Podcast with the Pharmaceutical Technology Editors. If you want to stay in touch with the Pharmaceutical Technology team, subscribe to this podcast as well as to our e-newsletters. When you sign up for our newsletters, you will be updated about future episodes of Drug Solutions, receive our magazines, learn about upcoming webinars and hear about episodes of Drug Digest. Thanks to everyone for joining us for this episode of the Drug Solutions Podcast.